0: that you come, Lord, and I just pray, Father, that we would truly have hearts that are prepared to receive you or to be received by you. But I do pray, Father, for those out there who aren't prepared, and I pray, Father, for our opportunity to have influence in their lives, how much more so this time of the year as we gather together with family and friends. And so, Father, as we look at these concepts that you have given us tonight, as we look at the world and the world's motivation, May we truly be reminded and come to that understanding that we are no longer of the world, but we are of you. And so, Father, just bless us, speak to us, guide us through your word. One more time, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn to greet your neighbors. Greetings. Greetings to you. And salutations. Hello. Hi, Linda. How are you? It's nice to be greeted. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word, if you will. It must be the Lord. (laughs) Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting at verse 1, it says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this is also vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched my heart, how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the providence. I acquired male and female singers and delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure for my heart rejoiced in all of my labor And this was my reward from all of my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Father, there is no profit under the sun or apart from you. And I pray, Father, that we would truly come to that understanding as we observe the world, as we observe those who do not know you, Lord, that we would see the futility of life apart from you, but also the meaning of life within you. And so, Father, once again, just confirm your word within our heart. Show us, Lord, the certain aspects of the lives of those who do not know you, that, Lord, we would be able to enter in and to minister. And so, Father, once again, we just thank you for this evening. Pray that you would bless us in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So, again, that's the key word here is under the sun, at earth level or under the S-O-N. He's looking at life apart from God and trying to make sense of it all. He's referred to here as the preacher. We saw in our introduction study that more than likely this is Solomon because that would make more sense than, well, it would make more sense than a poor man telling you that riches are vanity. How much more so if you have a man who's probably the richest man that ever existed and realized there's no satisfaction in it how much more would that minister to you? And so in chapter 1, in our last study, we saw that the preacher came to three realizations. First, as he's looking at nature, he realizes nothing ever really changes. Nothing ever changes. The, the, the streams pour into the ocean, and the ocean is never full. The wind blows around on its circuit, and it comes around again. And if nothing changes, then he's looking around and he's thinking, well, nothing's ever really new. I mean, what what is it? What difference is a man able to have in his mere existence that he's able to work change and, and something new comes upon the scene? Well, nothing changes, nothing is new, and then he just goes into a further confusion and that nothing is really able to be understood. And so as he's making these examinations, again, it's important to remember that. Apart from a relationship with God, what is the meaning of life? And it's not so much don't even make it that abstract but what am i here for what am i here for and what difference am i really going to make well we saw his first conclusion in chapter one the last two verses last three verses 16 through 18 he says i communed with my heart i got real with myself or i got honest with myself i made an honest evaluation of my life and existence saying look I have obtained greatness and gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He's coming to this realization, fool's better off than I am. He's living a fantasy, or maybe he's living in ignorance, but nonetheless, the wisdom that I've received, I see things very plainly, and I see reality for what it is when I'm truly honest with myself, and I see that there's no real substance here. In reality, looking at the preacher's predicament, it seems that ignorance truly is bliss. And so we have a lot of people out there in the world today. Ignorance is bliss. It's why they don't like it when you share the gospel. That's why they don't like it when you tell them about Jesus Christ, because they're forced to face reality. And apart from a relationship with God, again, they're coming to the same conclusions, because in much wisdom is grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And so you've got the world trying to sedate themselves from those realities. And so they buy into some of the greatest lies that man has to offer, and that, well, we have more time, or the day of death, don't worry about it, it's far down the road, or whatever it is that we're lying to ourselves at the present time about. But in reality, our day of death is coming. All will soon die. All of us. We've done, this year, I have done more funerals, I've officiated over more funerals than of all my years in ministry. That day is coming. And so, are we prepared? Are we prepared? Are we personally prepared and then the next question for the fool that says he is prepared are you properly prepared things and stuff aren't going to help you even human intellect well it just brings you much more grief are you prepared in that which is the only thing that can truly prepare you so the wisdom of man has led the preacher to despair and now he's soon to fall over the cliff of despair which is death again death death is that cruel joke apart from god that is at the end of all of man's life now entering into chapter two he looks at all that mankind in that state will set himself to do when he has absolutely no concrete answers and no solution to the human predicament it's here that we have a cross-section of society and it's here we've got to understand what is being said in this chapter We have a cross-section of society that we minister to. We have a cross-section, I pray, of what our lives used to be. I see some of these things still within the church today, but we should be able to relate them and say, I was there. I was trying to gather these things. I was trying to find contentment the same way those people who are under the sun do. And so that as we observe these things, what I see, what I've found out as just even studying this, is just patience and obedience to God. And what God has called us to do, just a patient continuance in what God has called us to do. Because, see, what he's doing is, he's bringing the preacher here, well, he's bringing him to chapter 12 when he comes to his final right conclusion, but in actuality, he's bringing him to the end of the line in all these different aspects and facets of his life so that he would see that there is no fulfillment there. And then that's where we come in when people reach that point of despair, when they realize that nothing in life ever changes, nothing is new, and nothing's understood. And all these things that people seem so, well, they seem to place such a priority on, apart from Christ, that do absolutely nothing for a human life. And then that's where we're able to enter in and to offer them Jesus Christ in Him crucified, eternal life for the one who puts their trust in the Lord. So, lives for today, well, lives for today... We just see the despair that's entered into our society. And look what we've boiled down to. And, and, and really what I see in the reflections of our elections is, is just really another cross-section of society. We can't get what we want, and then, well, we protest it. We, we argue, and we see all the ranting and raving once again that, that's going on. This country, yeah, maybe there was a bit of a division during election time, but it would pull back together. But what happens when there's a split and it doesn't pull back together? And what people are placing upon the elected official is all of their hopes and dreams, expecting that elected official to make those things come true, although no elected official ever has. And so most people today, they don't worry about tomorrow and they ignore the reality of the day of their death they bought into the lies but to effectively do this you will need some all-consuming things to dull the senses of reality you're gonna have to have something that is going to fill your mind so that you don't focus upon what the reality of life is apart from God and again when you go out there when you have the opportunity and you share, that's the reason that you get rejected because now you're, you're, you're causing this person to consider divine wisdom of God. And he's having to examine these things and make the reality, or, or admit the reality that there's going to be the day of his death. And then there's a knowledge of that, that he's ill-prepared for that day. And, and look what you've done. I, I've spent all of this time, all of this effort, all of this money, whatever it is, to dull that sense. But you keep bringing that sense to the forefront and they don't want to hear it and they don't like it. But... As at some point, as was with all of us, you did surrender yourself to the Word of God, and as you surrendered yourself to the Word of God, then everything did make sense. Paul, the Apostle Paul, understood this concept as he wrote his letter to the Corinthians in First 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-two. This is the seed of human wisdom of the day in in Greece. And he says, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage, what, what advantage is it to me, all these things that I do, Paul is saying? You know, I, I've dedicated my life to the Lord. I go and I preach the gospel. I had a pretty hard time at Ephesus and all that. What advantage to me is it? He says, if the dead do not rise, if there's no resurrection, if there's no life after this, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, you better enjoy today, you better spend your time in the things that the preacher was doing here in the first part of chapter 2 because that's all you're ever going to get, you know, apart from God, if he's like he said here, the dead do not rise. And so the preacher, again, he's examining these things and he's looking at himself this time. And he's looking at all that he has set his heart to do because back in Genesis chapter 3, God proclaimed a curse upon mankind that he would work by the sweat of his brow. And that's a reality in our lives. But again, that can either be a true curse in your life or that curse could work to be a blessing when I understand, again, God's plan for mankind. If I don't, then I just see my work just as an endless series of events that leads, well, I hope to the day that I retire. But how much time do you even have in retirement? Even our own duke. He retired, what, about six months ago, if even that long ago? And the Lord took him home not too long ago. Well, a week ago, a week and a half ago. And so we've got to consider these things. So verse 1 in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I said in my heart, so again, he's getting real with himself. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, but surely this is also vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? So when a person decides to not face certain realities, the first person that they need to convince of its non-existence is themselves. And again, so many people are living lives that are, that are lies. They, they have chosen to ignore reality and they're just living a life of, of fantasy. I mean, what do we see in the movies? We see fantasy. We see fantasy-driven movies are more reality today as society is not all that it used to be. And if that's the case, you just realize that, man, there is that sense of despair that has truly entered in. So we're told here that this willfully ignorant person, he's got to speak to his heart. He's got to come to an agreement with his soul. His heart his heart is the seat of his emotions and the place of his intellect. It, I, I just kind of picture Solomon here, in the midst of everything he's been able to acquire, it, instead of looking at all the things and the stuff, where am I really at in the midst of all of this? All of these things, kind of an older man as he would take inventory of his life, you know, I, I got these things, these things. Some of these things I, I work so hard. And, and, and as I've been able to a, a, a accomplish these things more than anybody else ever has, Where's the reality of what I'm getting out of these things? What, what is the reality of contentment that I'm finding here? So to properly deceive yourself, you must thoroughly convince your conscience, which is that which governs your heart, that now he's becoming honest with himself. When he says, come now, he's kind of given an order to his heart to obey. Come now, and I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this is all vanity i've tried to take these pleasure and satisfy this this deep-seated reality that that this isn't the real meaning of life i tried to 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 apply this to my life but as all it turned out to be was vanity it just turned out to be a vapor again there was no real substance to it when he speaks of mirth here he speaks of senseless pleasure Again, just partying for the sake of partying or whatever it might be. And then even here, when he says laughter, the idea is an irrational folly of a madman. He comes to that end of his rope that this is just a joke. It's just how we would use that term, anything but a joke. But he just laughs as a fool or a madman laughs. Earlier, Solomon had written in Proverbs 14, 13, Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow, and the end of mirth may be grief. Sooner or later, you're going to have to face reality. I remember asking my friend Carl. Carl became addicted to cocaine. Why do you do so much of that stuff? And he goes, well, it's just got this hold on me. And and when I start doing it, I get this high. But right away, when I get this high in this sense of pleasure this sense of depression starts to enter in. Because I know sooner or later, the high is going to go away. So I continue to take more and more to keep that high and to keep it going. And, and there's been times that he he did it for days on end in order to keep that high, in order to dull his sense of reality. I would imagine anybody who's ever been addicted to drugs could probably tell you the same story. So look what Solomon, again, this is apart from God, look what he had Look at the effort that he has put in in order to examine his life and how he tried, apart from God, to make, make, make sense of it all. Matter of fact, from verse 3 down to verse 11, I underlined all of the eyes. Notice in verse 3, I searched my heart. Verse 4, I made my works great. Verse 5, I made myself gardens. Verse 6, I made myself water pools. Verse 7, I acquired... Verse 8, I also gathered. It's still in verse 8, I acquired. Verse 9, I became great. Verse 10, I did. Verse 11, I looked. And verse 11, I had toiled. And so he's centered upon himself, and this is the kingdom that I've been able to build. Apart from God, what is all of mankind doing? They're all building their kingdoms here on earth, such as they are not so much as grand and glorious as Solomon's was, but nonetheless, setting himself, just trying to make life comfortable and draw some kind of meaning and comfort out of life. And so the first thing that we see the preacher turns to in his quest for making sense of life is wine. And how many times have we seen people do something similar to that? You could probably plug drugs into that, but in verse 3, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly uh, uh, on this foolishness that we do, these foolish things that we do in our lives till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives to once again to make sense of all of these things. And so the idea here is he acquired his heart, I'm sorry, acquainted his heart with wine. He did not necessarily, and he's not, gonna, he's not talking about going to the point of addiction. And I think it's important to, to understand this here. He's not talking about, you know, I became an alcoholic or anything. But he's just trying to make sense. And so he, he looked to the bottle, if you will. Didn't become a drunkard. He didn't allow wine to consume him. The idea here is he kind of became a connoisseur of wine. Just trying to make sense of these finer things. And he's seen how people have taken these things in excess. He examined that. He examined the drunkard in, in Proverbs many times. But just look at himself, because I can keep things under control, I would imagine, he thought. And there may be something in wine or anything that will dull your senses to what reality really is. And so when he needed relief from reality, wine was there to soothe his conscience. Just a glass at dinner maybe just a mug of beer with friends, just something to enable him to unwind, just something that at the end of the day would help me understand how I had spent my day doing the things that I do every day. Because remember what he had seen before, there's nothing new, nothing changes, nothing's understood. And so when somebody comes to those those understandings, what do you get up in the morning for? What is it that you're going to think that you're going to accomplish in that day? There's nothing new. There's nothing ever changes. Nothing's ever really understood, so why bother? But he knows that, no, I, I, I've i got to do this, and I've got to continue to search after this. But it's at the end of the day, it's as if he becomes frustrated with these things, and so the wine's there, and he's applying the idea like a scientist that will drop a chemical into uh, his little batch of chemicals there trying to look for a reaction. He's doing the same thing with his heart, hoping that someday that this was going to cause understanding. So the preacher, he did these things to his heart. To lay hold of folly means to kind of keep these things under control, to make sense of things. This is what our state recently has decided to do with marijuana. I mean, do we really think that this is going to make things better? Just as alcohol is an out of control problem, this is going to become even more of an out of control problem. And what are we ultimately trying to do? Well, the state is trying to gain money off of the marijuana sales, but the people who are taking it, they're dulling their senses to reality. Those of you who did those things, don't raise your hands, you don't need to know. But why were you doing those things? You were dulling your senses to reality. Now, there was a time, if you look at the history, or even our fairly recent history, that there was the belief that truly taking drugs are going to give you a higher sense of reality. Again, it was one of the mantras of the 60s. You take some of this and you'll see God. And some of the rock musicians said, yeah, you know what? I wrote that song. I was I was high on pot or, or whatever it might have been. And, and I just kind of i I had this vision or i had this or had all of that obviously we look at these things and they're not of the lord and if they're not of the lord then you have to ask what are they of well they're either the devil or the flesh and really the two kind of intermingled together and so there was that reality even what did the military do they they tried to or they did they applied lsd to some people who were unsuspecting trying to look and see what the they see what the changes were would these changes be beneficial to us in any way well the preacher could have told them thousands of years before now nah, i tried all those things maybe not the specific drugs but i i tried wine and it didn't really work problem even in the best cases when you're under the influence of alcohol you are not under the influence of the holy spirit and it's under the holy influence of the holy spirit that differences we see this in Acts chapter 2. We're studying this in our men's study on Wednesday morning. It, it was the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit came upon men and women, that the course of the world was changed, that things made sense, and the gospel went out. And the Son, the Son, instead of living a life under the Son, they became a part of the family of the Son, and they lived their lives in the Son. And again, that's where we draw our meaning. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 tells us, do not be drunk with wine. And what he's saying here is don't be under the influence of wine because whatever you are under the influence of, that is going to control you. If you're under the influence of alcohol and you're driving, they'll arrest you because the alcohol is controlling your driving and you're going to hurt somebody. If you get angry with somebody and you get over-angry and you hit somebody or whatever, what happened? I just let anger get the best of me. You came under the influence of anger. And Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're under the influence of God. And if you're under the influence of God, then there's going to be meaning and purpose to life. And so... It's a slippery slope here as well. Just even experimenting with these things, how many people experiment and then all of a sudden you see them go off the deep end to alcoholism. The preacher, uh, the verbiage here lends towards him not going there, but how many people do go there? How many people maybe look at somebody influential like this and, well, he's got a glass of wine, how about me? And then they end up going down that slippery slope of alcoholism or whatever, Now, again, alcohol is not sin within itself. It's sin to be drunk, but it is not sin to have a drink. And so my wife and I, we've decided to drink. No, we have not decided to drink. We've decided that we are not to drink. Why? Because of the influence that may may give somebody the wrong idea. It may send somebody down the wrong path. And I say my wife and I have, have decided, we've confirmed that God has told us to not do those things. I can stand up here and I can make a case for it. I can make an argument for it. But the bottom line is God has, not, has told me not to do it. Why has God told me not to do it? Not because I'm going to go to heaven because I don't drink. That's not true. Not because, well, you can fill in so many blanks, but the simple fact is, is the influence that I will have upon somebody else's life. And I know there would be somebody in the church that would say, I can have a drink because Pastor Mike has a drink. And they'll use that argument, and they'll take one drink too many to their own detriment. Second, Secondly, the second thing that the preacher turns to in his quest for making sense of life is work. Verses 4 through 6. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I don't think these things he did sequentially. I, I just think that these are just part of his life that he's visiting right now. And once again, we've got a four-part list here of things that he said himself to do, and none of them within themselves are sin, but it's just sin when you take Jesus Christ out of the equation. So I don't want you to go quit your job tomorrow and say, well, it shouldn't work because it wasn't good for the preacher. No, you do need to work, but you need to have it in the proper context, and the proper perspective. And so, once again, we need to look, verses 4 down through verse 11, that all these things were his works, they were all eye-centered. Now, the works that he's talking about is not humanitarian works, it's not ministry, and it's not for the benefit of society. Once again, he's self-centered here. He's doing all of these things, and he's building for himself all of these things, again, in order to make sense of life. We know that Solomon built For 13 years, for 13 years he built, now he didn't do the work he had it built, but nonetheless put the effort in a house for himself. His house took 13 years to build. He built a porch of pillars, a hall of judgment. He built a palace for the daughter of Pharaoh. He built fortresses. Megiddo is a fortress that's on a plateau. We were there when we were in Israel. Very impressive, even in its ruins, I would imagine what it looked like at the day. He built store cities for all of his things and all of his stuff. He built chariot cities and even distant cities and other lands. He got them busy and he kept his people busy building all of these things because, again, if you stop and you, you stop the wine, you stop the building and you don't replace it with something else, then you once again settle back into despair. And so you take the alcoholic, you take the workaholic or whatever, and, and, and you relieve them from their burden, but unless they have Christ to turn to, they'll simply turn to something else. And so there's that great void in the lives of men and women, and they fill that void with something, but there's only one effective filling of that void, and that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so notice here, he doesn't speak of the temple, because that was probably his greatest building project, but he didn't build that for himself. That's that which God had told him to build. That was a divine mandate from the Lord used to the glory of God. There was reason and purpose in the temple, but he found in his own home, there was no satisfaction. There was no reason or purpose. He found in all of these great halls and pillars and palaces and fortresses and cities and all of these things, There was no reason and purpose. If he would have stopped and examined the temple, though, he would have understood, well, you know, I built that. And there was reason and purpose because I can see people coming in, and I can see people worshiping God, and I can see the hearts of the people as they enter in. Again, from my perspective, I get to see these things. I see the changed lives. I've seen understanding when in the scriptures somebody gets it, and they see the reason and the purpose of, of what happens here. And what we all do here is we get together. I I saw it when we had the funeral for Duke, and I saw the the, the ministry that occurred there. I mean, you kind of think about it. You have somebody die, and you gather together, and you celebrate this life, but he's still dead. What what sense does all that make? But I see the sense that it makes. I see the the strength that the family gains from these things, and even the church as we have a common purpose as we gather together. I I see the gospel as it's shared, or the word as it's preached from the stage, and they see, again, people in their hearts as they gain some understanding from these things, and it makes a difference within their lives. And so when architecture did not satisfy him, him, he tried horticulture. He made for himself vineyards and gardens and orchards. Now, these things he would be able, they've got practical ramifications if you've ever had a garden it's kind of a neat thing to grow your own vegetables or your own fruit and go back there and be able to partake of it but instead of satisfaction from these things it just brought more work into his life there was no real satisfaction from being able to harvest these things and and whatnot because again he's looking at these things apart from God he then needed to involve himself in the hydrological works because once you have all of these orchards and everything, then you've got to water them. Again, verse five, I made myself gardens and orchard orchards <laughs> and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. And I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. So again, you know, you got one thing and then you got to build something else and then there's a lot of other things that are attached to it to keep these things going. And sooner or later the things that we develop to maintain a sane life become more maintenance than they're really worth. And, and there's just this endless cycle that starts to go on now. Now I, I want the trees and I want the fruit that produces them, but now I've got to build the water pools and I've got to have people that go through and maintain them. And it just, it just goes to an insane place. It's been said that the happiest day of a boat owner's life is the day that he buys his boat. The second happiest day of a boat owner's life is the day he sells his boat. I noticed that. My dad always desired to have a boat. He bought a cabin up in Big Bear, and that's where he wanted. He liked going fishing up in Big Bear. He bought a cabin and wanted to have a boat, but nowhere to put the boat. Didn't want to pull it from the mountain down to Brea, where his home was and everything. So he spent, I don't know how much money he spent, but quite a bit to build a garage for the boat. And so he builds a garage for the boat, and now he goes out to buy a boat. And my dad was fairly well off, so he could afford a boat, and so that wasn't really an issue. And so he goes and he buys a boat. He bought a pretty big boat. I, I don't remember how big it was, but it was pretty big. And then we realized he needed something to effectively pull the boat, and so he went and bought a Bronco to pull the boat, and you know the towing package and all that, and got all those things and stuff. And when you get a boat, there's things and stuff to get for that, and the maintenance on it and all that. And so now he had it all. And so he had gone out a few times, and my wife and I, we were having kids, and we couldn't go up there as freely as we could nowadays. So we went up there finally one day, and you want to go out on the boat? Yeah, I'd love to go out on the boat. And so my dad, he was kind of funny this way. It's like, okay, nobody touch the boat. I'll show you how to do the boat. But, you know, he's had to be in control of the whole thing. He was a control freak. That's where I get it from. And... And so we, we're getting there and Sean, my son's wanted to climb. get your kid off the boat, and it's all of a sudden this is just becoming just kind of a disaster here. So we all get in the car, we pull out of the driveway, and boom! He didn't put it down on the hitch and it fell off the hitch. And so and so finally we get down there and we get down to the lake and there's this whole big process to launch the boat out on the water and it's gotta be done just right. And so we pull it over to the dock, everybody and you gotta sit there, sit there, don't touch it. You know, and it's like, really? Is this really worth it? He ended up selling the boat. You know, it was his dream, but it just got to be more work than it was really worth. How many pieces of exercise equipment have you really needed to have that ended up being a clothes rack or something? Just sat there and gathered dust, and that thing that you spent $1,000 for, you sold at a garage sale for 20 bucks. You know, how many people have needed to have the... (laughs) My dad, same thing. Needed to have the pool table. But you can't just stick a pool table somewhere. You've got to build a room for a pool table. Now, if you get a pool table, standard size pool table, I don't know, they're about, what, five feet by ten feet, we'll say. I don't remember. But you've got the pool stick, so you've got to build the room. The pool table, plus maybe about eight feet both, way, be, all, uh, both ways all the way around, you've got to build a pretty big room. You've got to have a pretty significant place to keep it. And... The thing that it got used for mostly was my mother laying the laundry out and folding the laundry on. It was a a flat place for that or whatever else that needed to be spread out. Yeah, you go there and you play all the time, but it gets to the point, you want to play? pool? eh, not really. And just vanity, vanity. It's just grasping for the wind. And if you can't relate to those things, how about the day you get a pet versus the day that you got to go back out there and you got to feed them and you got to go pick up after them and all of those things. Vanity, vanity, all's vanity and grasping for the wind. Later on, he will come to this conclusion in chapter 4, verse 6. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Better Better is contentment, but just a little bit, rather than going to these excesses and just seeing these things consume your life. Then thirdly, the third thing that the preacher turns to in his quest for making sense of life is wealth. Verses 7 and 8. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of provinces. I acquired male and female singers the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. The more things and stuff you get, the more it gets you. The more things to take care of. Later on, he's going to say, the working man has it better than I do. He works hard all day. He goes home. He lays his head down on his pillow, and he has a good night's sleep. Me? I've got to be concerned. All of these servants, you have to feed them. You have to take care of them. You have to maintain them and all this effort that I'm constantly putting into. And then, and then I've got this silver and gold. He was probably the richest man who ever existed. But then you become concerned about people who might be taking it and stealing it and taking advantage of you. And he says, I lay my head down at night and I don't sleep. I'm too concerned about all of these things. And so the things that our world tells us is going to give us contentment. And, and, and this is really what life is all about. Really, it just serves to make life even more miserable. We know that Solomon, Solomon being as rich as he was, again, he never really had that that contentment in his life. It was always more. God told them not to multiply horses, but he multiplied horses. God told them not to multiply riches, but he multiplied riches. And then he had to deal with the stress of keeping and maintaining, and it becomes greater than the pleasure and the contentment of owning. In Ecclesiastes 5.13, there is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. And he says these things have had the opposite effect. The fourth thing that the preacher turns to in his quest for making sense of life, and this is what the common, I've looked it up, and a couple commentators have gone in this direction. It makes sense because it fits in with Solomon's life, but as women. In and, and verse 8, the last part, when he says the delights of the sons of men, they believe that that's what he was speaking about. we know that Solomon multiplied wives and concubines up to a thousand up to a thousand taking these things to excess and here we see the moral implications as well not only was he diving deeper into the depths of depravity he was also dragging others with him when you go in that direction this one carried very heavy repercussion in Solomon's life we see it in his testimony in 1st And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Now, I don't know that it was specifically it was his wives or maybe just the lust that he had for these women, but nonetheless, it turned his heart away from the Lord. And so instead of making sense of life, it just drug him even so much further in the ditch. Then he summarizes these things that that seemed to be so attractive, these things that people under the sun spend their time working for when it comes to wine, work, wealth, and women, verse 9. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all of my labor, and this was my reward for all of my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done. He's saying, then I've I, I taken inventory of these things, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no substance. They could do absolutely nothing for me. There was no profit under the sun. Donald Trump, obviously, is is in the news a lot today, and he's probably one of the examples that you would use, speaking of a rich man. As I was growing up, it was Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was a a man who was a multimillionaire. I believe he got his riches originally in oil and then went into the aviation industry and movie industry and whatnot. Uh, I I didn't do my homework on that um, to see how rich he was, but I do remember when he died. When he died, he was so afraid of death. He would not allow anybody to cut his hair so he had long hair. He was an older man. I I don't remember if he was in his 70s or 80s. And I don't remember what his reasoning was, but for some reason, he would not cut his fingernails. And he went a little bit insane. A little bit insane. Why? Because he realized all the money, all the things, all the stuff, it's vanity. And the problem was... Instead of dedicating his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, he dedicated his life to the things and the stuff. But what were the things and the stuff? The things and the stuff were just an attractant. It was an attractant that kept his heart away from the Lord and brought him towards those things. And then when he needed something that was going to be of some substance for the most, uh, at the most desperate part of his life, it's as if somebody pulled the rug out from underneath him and he crumbled and he died a man who was desperate and alone. Notice the comment made at the end of verse 9. Also, in the midst of all of these things, my wisdom remained with me. You would think, well, that's a good thing. That's a bad thing. That's a bad thing for somebody who's trying to find contentment in things and stuff. This is a problem for the one who tries to live his life in denial. Matter of fact, that's what he's trying to, that's, that's the voice of reason that he's trying to quiet Because remember what had happened previously in verse 18 of the first chapter? For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And so he tried to drown it out with alcohol. He tried to work it out. He tried to buy it out. and He tried to soothe it with lust. But still, his wisdom remained with him. And with his wisdom and his predicament, there was much grief, and he increased sorrow. And it just became an endless cycle that never went anywhere. Wisdom from God for the one who wants to please God will be the biggest blessing in your life. Wisdom from God for the one who wants to please himself will be the biggest curse in your life. And so again, those things that we talked about earlier, those points that I made uh, as far as wine, work, women, and um, wealth within themselves. They're not bad things, but you must exercise the wisdom that God gives. You must conduct yourself according to the word of God, but you take God out of the equation as he has. All's falling. It's grasping for the wind. It makes no sense, and he had to know that he's headed for the day of his death. He's headed for the day of his death, and there's emptiness here. there's despair in that emptiness you look at a life and you wonder what was the meaning of that life somebody who has passed away even my own father you know my i remember my grandfather and then from my grandfather came my father from my father came me from me came my children from my children come my grandchildren what's the reason and the purpose for all of those generations there's got to be some meaning to that There's got to be some purpose to that. And and if you never find that meaning in the purpose, then you find despair. And there we have an accurate picture of our world today. We've taken God out of the equation. The the world today, they observe the world. Their worldview is under the sun. It's apart from God. And there's always going to be despair in that. You have the athlete, you have the actor who's obtained everything they want, and there's an empty see a high suicide rate there you have the people who try to drown these things and and work or you, they try to drown them in alcohol or whatever it might be relationships and all of these things and you see they all come to the same conclusion there's vanity and there's no real substance here second corinthians chapter three verses five through six not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves but our sufficiency is from god who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Our focus is upon the Lord. When, he, when we fill ourselves with the Lord and the things of the Lord, then everything else falls into line. Everything falls into proper perspective. And myself, I had a business, very successful, but then the Lord took it from me. I didn't know the Lord at the time, but it, it was like, what was the use of, of, of the effort that I put into all of this? A- and I look at that that, that point in my life, and I see the richness of it because I see the hand of God upon it. But apart from the hand of God, what difference does anything make? What difference does it make who's in the White House? We have to be a people who turn our hearts to the Lord. As we do that, it's then and only then that we'll find contentment and truth in this life. Father, once again, we just thank you for your word and the direction that it gives. And I just pray, Father, that we would examine these things as they relate to our lives and see the truth in these things. As we look at the things and the stuff that we needed to have, that we had to have, and once we got it, it offered no real contentment in our life that, Lord, it was only you who have brought those things. And so, Father, I just pray that we would have that perspective. Father, that we would see the value of things that you see the value in that, Lord, we would learn to treasure our relationship that we have with you, and we would nurture that and put our efforts into that. Sure, Father, relationships and wealth and, and these things that you have given us to enjoy, we would do so in the proper perspective. Father, I pray for Thursday as we go into the homes of family and friends that you would bless us and use us as a blessing, Father, that we would show who the provider of all those things are. And Father, as we continue to move forward in this, this life, as many days as you have given us, I pray, Father, that we would exalt you every day of our life. So once again, we just thank you for this evening. I pray for those, Lord, who have come out today. I pray that you would go before them in this week, that you would watch over them and keep them, and that, Father, we would once again find our contentment under the shadow of your wings, we pray in Jesus' name.